be seated. If you have a Bible with you, I ask you to take and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Yes, that is in the Bible, Habakkuk, all right? And so we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk in a little bit today, and we want you to, I want you to read along with me. If you didn't bring a Bible with me, you might um, put that uh, in, your, uh, in an app or on your phone and find that. They're going to be talking about Habakkuk chapter 3, and so if you want to go ahead and find Habakkuk chapter 3, that's where we're going to be. Uh, I want to start today by talking about um, something that happened a, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the kind of um, some research that came out of that. A couple of weeks ago, we had a, a special night at our house. Um, this is something that, that doesn't get to happen very often. Um, and it was in the midst of Snowpocalypse 18, when the kids were out of school for like four and a half months straight. Y'all remember that? A couple of weeks ago? All right, so it's in the midst of that. And it was one of those days that we hadn't had a lot going on. And, and because of the snow and all of that, and some of those, the, we were enjoying that. And the boys were downstairs in our house uh, playing. And the girls were in our room watching a movie. And then Susan and I realized that we could actually watch a movie together. Like, the two of us, right? And so we looked for something to watch on all the streaming services and all that kind of stuff. And we found uh, a movie that neither one of us had seen, but we're interested in because of the story behind it. And it was the movie Sully. All right. How many of you have seen Sully? All right. And so how many of you remember when uh, Sully Sullenberger, who the movie is about, landed the plane on the Hudson River? How many of you remember that, all right? And so I've just been walking through that story a little bit, researching. It's just crazy. It happened nine years ago, January 15th, 2009. And in case you kind of need some refreshing on what was going on, they took off on a flight from LaGuardia. Uh, they were going to Charlotte and then on up to the Pacific Northwest. And at uh, 3.27 the afternoon, they take off, and four minutes um, or so, two to four minutes into the flight, you hear one word from the captain on the um, voice recorder. So they've taken off, they're starting to ascend, he's checked in, everything good going on, and then you just hear the simple word, birds. Birds had, a flock of geese had flown directly in the path of the plane, Hit the plane, thudded against the plane. The severe problem was that they had hit both sides of the plane and it hit both main engines. And both engines shut down. So he is two and a half, three minutes into his flight, still ascending, when he realizes that both of the engines are gone. By all calculations, he had a total of four minutes to figure out what to do. Now, I'm not a pilot. I know we have some people in our church that do some piloting. But can you imagine that situation? 155 people on board. You got four minutes to figure it out. He starts running through his options. And so he says, can we turn around? Can we come back to LaGuardia? And they tell him and look at it and they can find a place. And he looks at it in calculations and like, I can't do that. Can't make it back. What about New Jersey? Can I, you know, I'm just over the Hudson. I mean, he just commented over the, over the flight recorder how beautiful the Hudson was today. And he said, can I go to, to New Jersey? And they cleared a path for him there. And he said, I can't make that one either. And so as he's looking at his options all around, he finally comes over the voice recorder and says, I'm going down in the Hudson. And it wasn't like I'm going to crash in the Hudson. It was... I'm going to set the plane down in the Hudson. Now, when you watch the movie, which is based on a book that he actually wrote or helped to co-write, 
What you realize is that when all of this is going on, he has the clarity in that moment. He, it, the decision time it took for him to start the decision-making process was like 15 seconds. Then in 15 seconds, he went from, we've lost both engines, to, what can I do to save the 155 people behind me? Those of you who remember, there's a classic image from that. We've got it uh, on the screen for you here. When he landed the plane on the Hudson River. Now, it was January 15th. It was below freezing. In fact, one of the parts of the movie that I thought was funny was at the end, because I don't know if you're aware of this, this kind of got lost for some people afterwards. Sullenberger actually went on trial for whether or not he did the right thing. And there were lots of people that were claiming he could have made it to one airport or another and that he had failed in his judgment. And at the end of the testimony, they asked the co-pilot, would you have done anything differently? He said, um, I would have done it in the summer. Because <laughs> it was cold, all right? And in the movie, it's portrayed this way. And, you know, it's a movie, and I haven't read the book, but I've read some research. And so knowing the man and knowing kind of who he is, I trust this was accurate. In the movie, it shows that as the plane is on the Hudson and they're evacuating everyone because the plane's going to sink. They're getting everyone off and he's going through, water's up to his knees, he's trying to make sure everybody's off the plane. He keeps asking, do you have the count? Do you have the count? What's the count? And the way they depict it in the movie is that he's actually in the hospital himself getting checked out for all, make sure he's completely okay. And the leader of his union comes in and says, they're all here. His whole goal was to save everyone on that plane. We're going to be looking at the story of Habakkuk today. And Habakkuk was a prophet in the Old Testament who was living among a people whose lives and nation was literally crashing around them. You think, well, that's a little dramatic to compare it. It's really not. You see, Habakkuk, at the beginning of chapter 1 in the book of Habakkuk, he's a prophet that's different than other prophets because he comes directly to God and says, God, I don't like what's going on. How long are you going to let it keep happening? How long, O oh Lord? It's an honest prayer of God. We have, you have allowed us to fall into disrepair. God, you have allowed us not to have, see the blessings that you promised us. God, how long are you gonna let this go on? One of the things he teaches us early on, this is, this is bonus, this isn't part of the sermon. One of the things he teaches us early on is that God loves bold, honest prayers from his people. And sometimes we forget that. I'm convinced, you know, I don't know if you realize this or not, but God knows everything about you. And so when you go to God someday, when you're not feeling particularly blessed and you say to God, God, I just feel so blessed today. I think God wants to sometimes go, no, you don't. Right? He knows. If you're doubting today, he knows. If you're upset today, he knows. If you're mad today, he knows. If you're angry with him, he knows. If you're ex excited today, he knows. There are times that I think we're standing here and we sing, as Jeff kind of talked about a little bit. We sing worship songs to the Lord and the words of our mouths do not depict the nature of our souls. And God's like, no, that's not where you are today. 
What he would prefer than the, Lord, it's a lovely day. Thank you for all that you've given me. Is, God, I'm upset right now. Man, I don't like what's going on. And that's what Habakkuk does. He brings bold, honest prayers to God. But here's the key. When God answers, and God answers him, and I'll tell you in a minute what God answers. When God answers him, Habakkuk listens and responds according to what God says. Because God comes and says, oh, I'm not going to wait much longer, but it's not going to be the answer you want. I'm going to bring judgment on the people. I'm going to bring destruction on my people. Babylon is coming. Nebuchadnezzar is coming. I am bringing the forces of the greatest military nation on the earth right now to bear on my people. And so I'm not waiting much longer, Habakkuk. I'm going to do things that would shock you if you saw them, but they're not things that are going to bring joy to your heart because they're going to be hard. He says in order that the reason is to eventually bring his people back to him. The Babylonians are coming to shake up what's happening. Nebuchadnezzar's coming with his army to shake up my people. And the goal of that is to restore them to me. You say, well, how bad was it going to be? Bad. It's going to destroy Jerusalem. It's going to steal all the good stuff from the temple and take it to Babylon to put around their false gods. Destroy the temple. Destroy homes. And they were going to take the best and brightest of that group, of that nation, of Judah. And they were going to take them back to Babylon and train them to be Babylonians. And try to wipe away any semblance of worshiping God from their lives. And just like Sullenberger, just like Sully, Habakkuk sees that we're going down. Like the nation is in decline. My people are in decline. You think, Pastor, why are you talking about this today? Why are we talking about plane crashes and nations in decline? Well, here's what I, I do want to say, okay? We don't talk a lot about this here at this church. We talk about it some, but not a lot. But if you can, if you're not gravely concerned about the spiritual condition of the culture and nation in which we live, then you are asleep spiritually. And I'm not chicken little, sky's falling, but... If you're not gravely concerned about the spiritual condition of the culture and nation in which we live, then you are spiritually sleeping. Now, there are some good signs. There are some signs of revival and renewal in places. But overall, we live in a country and in a culture that doesn't seem to care spiritually about the things that God intends for us to. And I know that in some ways it seems like the country's doing pretty good. But I'm not talking about the GDP and an unemployment rate. I'm not talking about the Dow Jones Industrial Average even after it dipped the other day. I'm talking about the spiritual barometer of our nation. And when I think about our nation, there is a verse from Judges that describes what I believe is the state of our nation. And it says this, this is the theme of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did whatever seemed right to him. And when I think about our culture, when I think about our nation, I get a picture, not necessarily of the dramatic plane is about to crash right now into the Hudson, but I see us on a steady decline that is leading to a place of spiritual disease, destruction. And the question I want to ask today, okay, if, if you're Sullenberger, we know what he did. He landed the plane in the Hudson. What did Habakkuk do? What did he do when 
God gives him and him alone this vision. I'm about to bring destruction on everyone. How did he react? Have you thought about what you would do if you thought the end was like here and now? Do you see the story out of Hawaii? Right? Everybody in Hawaii on the island got a text message that simply said, Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Can you imagine, like, picking up your text, pick up milk at the store, got it. Words with friends, played, got it. Missile on its way, seek shelter. This is not a drill. Oh, that's different, right? Now, generally in in those situations, people handle them in two or three different ways. One way is people get cynical about it. Like the nation, oh, I don't care about anything. That's not, so what? It's not going to happen. Nothing's going to happen like that. They get cynical about it. Aren't you glad we don't live in a cynical age? That's sarcasm for you, all right? We live in an age that loves to bring people up and then tear them down, to put them on a pedestal and then talk about their faults. Another way sometimes people react when they think the end is near is carnal stuff. They just, oh, I'm just going to do whatever the carnal means of the flesh. It means whatever feels good, whatever's good at the moment. And even Christians kind of fall into this where we're not as bad as the culture, even though I'm giving myself over to things that I shouldn't. Or we we go into this self-preservation mode. You know what would have been real tempting if I was Habakkuk? And this is just being honest with you. If I was Habakkuk, I'm in there. I ask God, God, when are you going to do something about this? And God says, real soon, but I'm going to destroy everything. I would have been real tempted to say, hey, Susan, um, go pack a couple of bags. Get the kids. We're going to head up to, to Jordan for a little bit. We're going to take a little trip because God's about to destroy this whole place and we're going to get out of here. That's what was really bad about the Hawaii thing. You can't get anywhere, right? I mean, if you're in Nashville and Nashville says ballistic missile inbound, take shelter, I'm thinking I may be driving to Dyersburg because they're not going to do anything to Dyersburg, right? It's too glorious of a place. Nobody messes with Dyersburg. But I'm going to drive to Kentucky because there's nothing there to worry about, all right? And so whatever, it, it's, I love you Kentucky people, all right? Um, and so like, you, why you can't go anywhere? But the option for us sometimes is I'm just going to get away. I'm just going to, I want to, I want to preserve myself. There's a lot of debate right now, kind of, and this was really hot and heavy during the presidential election and all that was going on and even immediately afterward about this thing called the Benedict Option. Now, the Benedict Option is kind of proposed by a guy named Rod Dreher. It's not new, but it's his kind of new way of pro- that Christians in our culture in America ought to seriously start considering going into communities and developing communities for themselves, separated from the rest of the culture. The self-preservation. I want to be honest, there are times when I hear what my kids are learning, when I see what's going on in the news, when I think, that, that ain't too bad. But what did Habakkuk do? Here's a guy who sees the plane is on its way down. He's got a few minutes, a few moments to make a decision. What does he do? Habakkuk chapter 3. I'll give you the simple answer and then we'll dive into what it looked like. He doesn't get cynical. He doesn't get carnal. He doesn't worry about self-preservation. He doesn't withdraw. He prayed. Habakkuk prayed. 
Look at verse 2. We're only going to cover verse 2 today. It's the only verse of Scripture we're going to talk about. But look at what it says. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. A short, to the point, simple prayer. 33 words. A game-changing 33 words. Now, some translations are less or more than that, but in my Bible, in English, it is 33 words. And what it tells us is you don't need a thousand eloquent words to move the heart of God. But you do have to go to the Lord to see Him move. God in His sovereignty has decided that prayer is the mechanism that will unleash His power in this world. So as God has set up the world, what he has set up is that in order for him to move, that what's going to be required for him to move, what's going to be used for him to move, the mechanism that will be used for him to move is the prayer of his people. It's throughout scripture. Even in a place you wouldn't expect it to be. So Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 is this grace verse of scripture that says, pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request. Now, does anybody know what is being talked about in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 through 17? Anybody know what's there? You know, you can say it, right? Armor of God, right? It's the armor of God passage. And so what he says is, and so we get all talking about that, and it's a great thing to talk about the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. We talk about all those things, our feet shod with the gospel, the peace, the good news of peace. But here's the thing, when he gets to the end of that, at the beginning of it, he says, stand firm. That all this stuff is there for you to stand firm. This is lifestyle choices, what you're putting on is to stand firm. And he gets to the end and he basically says, in order to activate all that, in order to make all that real, in order to make all that work, in order to make all that function you must pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request so prayer is the catalyst that makes you stand firm in a world that is constantly barraging you because without prayer we are precluding the possibility of the power of god i want to tell you that's a good old-fashioned southern baptist sentence right there there are lots of peas in there Without prayer, we are precluding the possibility of the power of God. And the power of God can do what only God can do. And what is happening in Habakkuk is, he hears what's happening. He sees the people around him. He understands that God is bringing judgment. And he says, God, I've seen and heard of your good works. Stand in all of your deeds. Lord, do it again. In our time. In our people. Make it known in these years. And in your wrath, remember mercy. Three things I want to show real quick in this prayer and then we're done today. First of all, I want you to see that this prayer is a model for us as we pray about, think about revival in our own lives. The first thing that we see in this passage of scripture, that righteous prayer, revival prayer, prayer that shakes the nations, is a prayer that first of all remembers the glorious ways of God. 
I want you to notice that Habakkuk didn't come in to the prayer with his stuff. He didn't come in talking about his problems. He didn't come in with his ailments. He didn't come in saying, God, we're in trouble here. He comes in first and foremost saying, God, I have heard of how great you are. I stand in awe of your glory. I stand in awe of your deeds. I'm walking by faith here, not by sight. I have heard what you have done. And Lord, I want to stand in awe of you. Paul Tripp says, we need to put our hearts in a place where it can once again be in awe of the grandeur of God that reaches far beyond the bounds of the most expressive words in the human vocabulary. And most of us on a daily basis experience all amnesia. We forget the God that we serve. And what happens in our lives is we allow that cynicism, that carnality, that withdrawal to forget the glory of God. And it leads to a life of self-centeredness. Because when we are without the awe of the glory of God, we focus on our highest agenda as ourselves. Tripp says that you can see it in the crankiness of a baby, the rebellion of a little boy, the entitlement of the teenager, the demands of a young bride, the work schedule of a middle-aged man, and the grumbling of the elderly. And I'm not going to ask you which one of those you're in, but for some of you I know, all right? We live with a sense of entitlement and discontent that leads to relational dysfunction. We want to control everything. We live in fear and anger and envy and exhaustion from trying to do so much. We live in doubt and all of that leads to a spiritual winter that never ends. I'm done with winter. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? I really don't like that groundhog. And I really want all the tell. I'm convinced that the television camera lights are what makes him see his shadow. They need to go away. All right. Now, we don't actually believe a groundhog controls the weather, but I'm just, you know, I'd be fine with snow from like December 23rd to January 1st and then like 70 degrees. All right. Maybe two days in January and two days in February, the kids get out of school so they don't drive their teachers nuts. All right. Can you imagine living in a place where it was winter all the time? Like nobody has a problem living in Hawaii where it's never winter. Right. You don't want to live in a place where it's winter all the time. One of the classic lines in the Chronicles of Narnia is when they first get, C.S. Lewis book, they first get to Lion, Witcher, and the Wardrobe, to Narnia, they say, it's always winter and never Christmas. A perpetual coldness. And what happens in our lives when we lose a sense of the majesty and the glory and our awe of God, we live in perpetual winter spiritually. And there are some of you that are living in a time when you're trying to make it look good. You're trying to fake it until you can make it. You think, if I can just get through this, I'll go to church. I'll go to the Sunday school classes. I'll talk about Bible study. I'll act like I know what I'm doing. But internally, you have lost your sense of awe before the Lord. And you are living in a spiritual winter that never seems to end. These people in Habakkuk State didn't even know they were in that. And Habakkuk says, I know that the key to this awe is that I stand in awe. 
He doesn't list the deeds, but we know that he's talking about creation. We know he's talking about the Exodus when God delivered his people. We know he's talking about Jericho when they walked around the city walls and the walls came tumbling down. We know he's talking about David slaying the giant Goliath. We know he's talking about even an incident like the God of Dagon who they stole the Ark of the Covenant. They brought the Ark of the Covenant to the temple of Dagon and they woke up the next morning and Dagon, the stone statue, is on the ground. And so they pick him up, which is always a difficult thing when you have to pick up your God. Right? Because you know you shouldn't have to do that. And the next day they come back, they leave the ark where it is, and they come back, and this time not only is he on the ground, but his head and his hands, the stone statue's head and hands, are cut off and laying on the threshold of the temple. And they get the idea maybe something's wrong here. Because you don't put the presence of Almighty God in the midst of an idol and expect the idol to stand up. When you think about creation and the God we serve, you realize that as human beings, the farthest we've ever made it in our universe is the moon. And we are very proud of ourselves for that. Maybe we make it to Mars someday. Those are two small planets in a system of nine planets, or however many there are now, whether Pluto is or is not. In an insignificant part of a galaxy that's an insignificant part of the universe. And we serve the God who said, let it be. And it is. And you worry if he can handle that $20, you don't know where it's going to come from. Or a relationship issue that's really being hard on you right now. I'm not minimizing our difficulties. I'm just saying we've forgotten how great the God is we serve when we think he can't handle what we got going on. And so Habakkuk comes and says, Lord, listen, I know what you just said. I know what you said you're going to do. And I trust that you can. You have every right to do it because our people have been wicked. You have every responsibility to take care of justice. And I'm glad you're a God of justice. But I know of your deeds. I have heard about have you delivered your people. Have you have saved your people. Have you have taken care of your people. I know of your deeds. I stand in awe of your deeds. And then he says to him, revive your work in these years. Make it known now. And there's a real shift in the original language. From the first person uh, singular, I, 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 to the second person singular of us, we, our, your. That he shifts from singular to plural. And he basically says, God, I've heard of your deeds. I know what you're capable of. You are the God of. Of God's, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Do it again. Are you praying for God to do something unexplainable? Something exceptional, something mind blowing, something we cannot explain. And can I ask you a question? Because what happens here is Habakkuk has been given this knowledge by God that he is bringing destruction upon his people. And as he's thinking about it, he's looking at it, he realizes they don't have any clue about it. But Habakkuk doesn't just pray for himself to see God move. He prays that his people, he prays for the people that don't even realize they need prayer, that they would see God move in a mighty way. Who are you praying for? Who are you standing in the gap for that needs Jesus? Outside of yourself, outside of your family, outside of your church friends, who are you praying for? And can I ask you a question? 
If you've got a coworker that surrounds themselves with other people that aren't followers of Jesus, if you have a family member that has walked away from the Lord and surrounds him or herself with people that are not following Jesus, if you've got friends, if you've got people that you care about, if you've got leaders that you see in our country, in our nation, in our cities, in our states, in our communities that are not followers of Jesus and aren't surrounding themselves with followers of Jesus, can I ask you a question? If you are not going to pray for them, who will? The responsibility of our following Jesus is to pray for people outside of ourselves. For them to come to see the power and the glory of our God. And then the last thing we see in this prayer. So he talks about the glory of God. He stands in awe of God. He shifts his focus and begins to pray, God, do it again. And then we see the third thing. He appeals to the mercy of God. What he says It's just simple, but it's powerful. In your wrath, remember mercy. He appeals to the mercy of God. And our God is a merciful God. Even in His justice, even in His wrath, even in His righteousness. He's a merciful God. I think it's best symbolized in the actual Ark of the Covenant. We talked about it a minute ago. This place that symbolized the presence of God. That had this ornate building. That had this place where they had the, on the top, they had the cherubim with their wings covering over. That was built of the best materials they can find. It was so respected that they did not carry it in any way other than God had intended to. Or when they decided to carry it in a way God did not intend to it, one of them touched it and what happened? He died. He didn't get sick. He didn't get the flu. He died. So revered that there are some scholars that think that when David finally on that trip realized, hey, we got to do this the right way. And they took the poles and they began to walk to Jerusalem, that they stopped and worshipped God every six steps on a several mile walk. And yet at the top of this particular item to be used in worship... That was to display the presence and the power of God. Right in the middle of the top where the angel wings come over. There was a spot that was called the mercy seat. Where the blood that was shed could be poured and forgiveness of sin could be found. When David sinned before the Lord and comes and confesses to that after being confronted with the sin in Psalm 51. He says... Have mercy on me. Have mercy according to your love, according to your faithful, always seeking love. We declare that God is worthy of our reverence and our fear. We should ask him to do it again, to show his great works in and among us. And then we appeal to the mercy of God. We pray for mercy for ourselves, for our family, for our co-workers, for our friends, for our elected officials, for our city, for our church, for our nation, and for the world. But there's a part of that last little phrase that I want to talk about just for a second before I challenge you at the end. I think it's interesting that if we were truly honest, we, most of us would say, man, I wish that prayer said, in your love, remember mercy. In your goodness, remember mercy. But what does it say? In your wrath. 
You cannot have mercy without the wrath of God. And God has every right to judge with wrath because his people have walked away from him. And that's you and that's me. Several years ago, a lot longer than I want to admit now, but um, I was a senior in high school. Did y'all know that, that I actually did that one time? It's been a while. It's hard to remember, right? Senior in high school. And my, my first kind of work um, in ministry, other than just helping out with youth group stuff and being a part of that, was that I was asked in Dyersburg to be a Young Life leader my senior year. And some of you are familiar with Young Life, some of you are not. In Dyersburg, um, it was particularly for high school students that weren't going to church anywhere. And they did this freshman Young Life just for freshmen in high school. And they used seniors as part of the leadership team there. And so I was asked to do that and, and I'm glad to do that and served in that and loved it. And part of that trip, or part of what we did was we took a trip every year on spring break, and that was part of your requirement to be a leader, and we would be the ones that would go do small group discussions after the speaker for the night. I remember distinctly one night, this was, it's like a four night camp, and this is like night two, the speaker that night talked endlessly, it seemed, about the wrath of God and the sin of people and how the holiness of God would not allow him to wash over the sin of people without justice prevailing. What made this sermon different was that he never talked about Jesus or the gospel or salvation or forgiveness. He ended by saying, for all of you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, And the wages of sin is death. Go talk about that in your small group. So I, I, the obedient senior leader, talked about that in my small group. And I had some, I had some Christian people in my group trying to, you know, poison the pot. Because we were just supposed, he told us, don't talk about the gospel, don't talk about forgiveness, just talk about their sin. You want to talk about a fun experience that was, right? And I remember afterwards, so afterwards we have a meeting that night for all the counselors. We come together and some of those other counselors that were in there were just mad. Like, like, and one of them said, I just couldn't do it. I told them all about the gospel. And I'll never forget what the speaker said that night. And there were lots of d- good discussion that, in that room. He said, and I'll never forget this. His name was Steve Willigan. He said, people who are not moved by the good news of the gospel do not understand how bad the alternative is. And he said, if I do not get them to understand how desperately bad they are without Jesus, they'll never listen to the story of Jesus. The next night, he told the full gospel presentation. And in my small group, kids, you could see the relief on kids' face. Like, that's an option? Like, he did that for us? And it was an awesome moment. The problem is, even for those of us that are followers, we don't realize what we've been saved from already. The cross is like wallpaper to us. So you sing about the cross and it's sweet and it's lovely. And it is. But it's just part of our existence. Shane Kimbrough was the, uh, is an astronaut for the United States and has spent time on the International Space Station two or three times. He spent six months there last year. I read this week his encounter of coming back. And he's a guy, this is one of those guys that's brave beyond measure that has done the, the um, extra vehicle assisted walks. 
He does, he's done spacewalks, which sounds really cool till you think about what you're actually talking about doing, right? Anybody here want to do a spacewalk someday? You know, they're going to make that. I see. All right. I'd like to see you do a spacewalk, David Jackson. I really would. All right. At the end of his last term, he was coming back. And he was in, coming back in a Soleus capsule, in a capsule built for one and a half guys. There were three of them in there. Barely fit in there. And it's a small little capsule. It comes down and they were planning to hit the ground in Kazakhstan. Now, first of all, if I've served my country for six months in the International Space Station, I think I'm going to ask them, can we land somewhere nicer than Kazakhstan? All right. Six months in space, they're coming back. But you've seen pictures of this. They're coming back in this capsule and it just free falls. And as soon as it hits the atmosphere, what happens to the capsule? It starts to burn. Like literally when you're sitting in the capsule built for one and a half people with two of your friends, you see flames coming up on the sides by the windows. The friction of the atmosphere heats the capsule to extraordinary temperatures. And the only thing protecting the astronauts is a heat shield on the bottom. In fact, I mean, they've got it worked out where they're pretty sure it's going to work now. But you don't know for sure because you have to come in at exactly the right angle at the right spot in order to do it. And the only way they know is they do a countdown where they're counting down in their head how long the heat should last. And as they're falling through the sky, as the heat is building to unbelievable temperatures inside, they are counting in their head 10, 9, 8, 7, Hoping for that moment where they break through and the parachute deploys and they land in Kazakhstan. He described seeing the fire by the window and in his mind just saying, heat, shield, hold. Heat, shield, hold. And when he hit the ground, he realized that he lived for another day only because of the heat shield. Can I tell you this? The wrath of God makes the temperature they faced re-entering the earth seem like lukewarm toast. And the cross is the shield that protects our lives when we trust in it. Without it, we're doomed. Habakkuk saw his nation on a collision course with disaster. And instead of running away and instead of trying to be sarcastic or um, not worry about it too much. Instead of trying to, to, to preserve himself and his family. He prays, Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in all of your deeds. Revive your work now. Here, do it again. Make it known in these years. And your wrath, remember mercy. And I want to see God move. And I'm not talking about just us to see 50 more people start showing up for church. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. I want to see God move. I want to see people all over this country's lives radically transformed for the glory of God and the sake of his kingdom. I want to see people's lives, marriages, families transformed. I want to see a revival spark throughout the world that starts somewhere here. And the way that begins is through God's people praying. 
God, we know you're a great God. We've heard of your deeds. We want to see them now. And in your wrath, remember mercy. Gypsy Smith was an evangelist who made over 50 trips between England and the United States. They called him Gypsy. That wasn't his real name, but they called him Gypsy because he made all those trips by boat from England to the United States back and forth. And everywhere he went, people were moved. God moved. People were changed. People were saved. People were, lives were transformed for the glory of God, for the sake of his kingdom. And somebody asked him, Gypsy, how do we get that? How do we do that? How do you make sure that happens? What do we need to do? And Gypsy said this. He said, if you want to see revival happen in your community, in your church, in your town, in your nation. He said, I want you to go home. I want you to find you a spot somewhere in your house, closet, somewhere safe, quiet, and alone. He said, you get down on your knees. And as you get down on your knees, you take a piece of chalk. And you draw a circle around yourself. He said, when you get that circle drawn all the way around yourself, you get on your knees in that circle. And you say to God, God, I want revival to be in this nation. I want revival in my church, but I want that revival to start in this circle. He said, look to the heavens and pray, God, we are in desperate need of you. But more than that, God, I am in desperate need of you. And Lord, I pray that you would start a revival right here. I wonder how many of you would be willing to draw that circle and to get on your knees and pray God would start a revival here and now that he would refresh your spiritual life. Would you pray with me?